Acts 21, 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, our brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is God's Word. We'll stop right there and we'll ask the Lord for help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of Scripture in Acts 21. Lord, we ask that you would open it to us and help us to understand it. And then, Lord, would you give us what's necessary to be obedient, not to go thou and do likewise as much as to live under the implications of what these things mean. And, Lord, would you give us wisdom in order to do so. We thank you for our time together. Be our teacher. Make us your students. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this passage is not a lot unlike the last passage in that it's the same sort of subject. Uh, This is a different situation. He's in Jerusalem now, uh, having arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 21. Uh, We read read last week of the stops they made along the way to arrive there, and then the prophecy by this man who... Uh, seemed to indicate through the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to experience some troubles when he arrived. And we're getting the first whiff of that. Next week we'll see his arrest. Uh, The idea was everyone is getting the same message from the Holy Spirit, whether it's the people in Tyre or the people in Caesarea or the people when they got there to Jerusalem, they're all saying, Paul, this is going to be bad. Don't go. And Paul said, why are you breaking my heart? You've known I've had to go. I am going. There's no discussion. And when they couldn't persuade him otherwise, they said, let the will of the Lord be done. Well, we get to this chapter, and we come right up against another time of decision-making. What to do? These people say, do this. We've already had a conversation long ago that basically says, I'm not required to do any of that. But for the sake of these people who might be upset if I don't, what are we supposed to do? So this is about decision-making. And I'm sure in a room this size, somebody has a decision to make this week. 
Uh, maybe you are looking forward to making the decision. Maybe uh, you wish you could just wake up the week after next. Having already done it, it's chips falling where they may as a result. Decisions are, are, are life. We make a bunch of them all the time. We each decided what to wear to come to church this morning, unless it was laid out for them like on the steps or the edge of the bed. Is, that's kind of our Saturday night ritual. We learned long ago, all those shoes, the matching socks, the belt, the shirt, the pants, they all need to be laid out Saturday night, not Sunday morning. So we, 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 we make our decisions early, but... You're not always given that opportunity. Sometimes the decisions come to you. You must make them. Others are watching. Others are dependent on what happens. Not unlike what we see here. So let's, let's take the passage apart. We'll put it back together. And we'll see what we can learn along the way. Verse 17, again, if we just kind of scrub through that to see where we're at to gain our bearing. They had come to Jerusalem. Brothers received us gladly following day, Paul went with us. So Luke is writing. He's including himself. He's, he's there as an eyewitness. And they're going to see James. This is the author of the book of James. This would be the half-brother of Jesus and the, uh, the ruler of the church there in Jerusalem uh, with elders that are there as well. After greeting them, the first thing they did was related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. It's another update from missionary Paul, finished with his third missionary journey now. He's going to relay that information. And it's a good report because we see that uh, they rejoiced. They're glad to hear it. They glorified God. So there's enough here to work with to, to say a few things. Luke is painting this picture. He's an eyewitness. Uh, it's a dramatic uh, situation here in that you've got Paul and James face to face. This is an interesting meeting. Uh, these men represent two groups of both men, women, and perhaps children saved by grace, but in two dramatically different categories. That would be Jews and Gentiles. So these were the covenant people of God that go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. Uh, Moses, Ten Commandments, period of judges, period of the kings, prophets, Kingdom splitting, Jews. And for the longest time, if you wanted to know the God of the universe, you needed to understand Hebrew because it was only revealed to the Hebrew people for a season. Now, after Christ has died, he's been buried, risen again, the, the, the veil of that temple that said, everybody stay out, rent from the top to the bottom, saying, everybody, come on in. The price is paid. It doesn't matter who you are. If you believe that Jesus is who he said he was and did what he said he did, then you're saved. You're a recipient of the grace. You don't have to be a, a, a member of God's covenant people. It's a new covenant. And everybody's offered salvation and forgiveness. So you would think everybody's on the same page and they all get along. Not necessarily. Some of those old habits will die long and die hard. This was not the first time that James and Paul had met. It was at least their fourth time, maybe a fifth. Uh, the Jerusalem Council that we studied in Acts, that was one of them and an important one and is referred to here. But to read our Bibles and to read both Paul, you've got about 13 titles with his name on it, and James, one of those books. I like this church in the 
Sunday school classes here do the hard work of pulling the Scripture apart, not to understand necessarily what it means to them, but what it meant to the people that it was originally written to, and figuring out that one purpose and meaning, meaning, and then applying that backward to the rest of their Bibles and arrive at a greater understanding. Every now and then, they'll be studying through James and say, now listen, we know that Paul says salvation's by faith and grace, and there's no works, lest anyone should boast. But then we read James, and all he cares about is works. Almost to sound like the two of them are on different sheets of paper. Now, they're not, and there's a study for this, and it's marvelously cohesive. But this might be the best help you might find at trying to make sure you understand the motives of these two men arriving at the same place, having been inspired by the same Holy Spirit. One of them is a minister to the Gentiles, and the other is a minister to the Jews. And the Jews still have that custom, and the Jews still have those traditions, and the Jews still think very much of the law of Moses. So those works are really what they're gauging the seriousness of these converts with. Whereas with Paul, he's trying to keep the Corinthian church from looking like the rest of the world because they have no morals and no law and no traditions and none of those things. So the need for a lot of grace for people that are still very much new to this whole thing is necessary. You got both of these men meeting and they both have their constituents as it were and there seems to be a misunderstanding of which is most important. That's what we're dealing with here. So it's evident throughout the book of Acts despite the tension between some believers in Jerusalem that the leaders, including James, are fully on board with Paul. That's the Jerusalem council. And they all walked out of there agreed. And we talked about how that was basically unprecedented because if they were not, it would have been a church for the Jews and a church for the Gentiles perpetuated through history. It's one church, one baptism, one gospel, one people. They're glad to see Paul. They rejoice over what he's had to say. However, there's serious concerns about Paul and his teaching. And most of those concerns have to do with misinformation of people who don't exactly know what Paul is teaching or have heard what Paul is teaching, come to their conclusions and misrepresent what he said. And that's the reason why all these people are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. Who's going to kill him? The Jews that are non-Christians or the Jews that are Christians, well, both of them are mad at him in a different way. And then there's some Jewish Christians who love him to death. The focus on this paragraph seems to be Paul's conciliatory action toward these Christian Jews, though there's just one example mentioned in this paragraph. There's actually at least two. By the time we get to chapter 24, we, we read that this is the time where he actually delivers that offering he's been talking about for chapters now, gathered among the Gentile churches to help those in need at the Jerusalem church. Now, what do we talk about? Putting your treasure where you want your heart to be? Well, these Gentiles are investing in the people, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Jerusalem church. That's not a small thing. It's a big thing. Paul doesn't mention that, or Luke doesn't, until we get to chapter 24. But that might have something to do with, uh, I don't know, 
them receiving them gladly. They brought us some money. It's always a good thing. Um, and what's strange is church sends out missionaries to the Gentile world. But the Gentile world sends the offering back. It's backwards, isn't it? Usually it's the missionaries who take the offering to the field and use it. Well, the field's bringing the offering back. It, 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 it's quite interesting. So that's one thing. But for this chapter, um, Luke chooses to spend his, his ink or his time describing how Paul responds positively to James' proposal designed to address the misunderstanding between these Christian Jews and James himself. And it has to do with Paul. So if we pick back up, this would be the, what, the second half of verse 20. And he said to them, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So you've got a bunch of Jews, but in that group of Jews, there's some that believe in Jesus, some that crucified him, and they don't. Um, we keep going. And they all are zealous Jealous and zealous, I almost said it the wrong way. I did say it the wrong way, but they almost sound the same because they're basically the same word. Zealous, jealous, it, it's very close uh, in its root and its meaning. Verse 21, and they have been told about you. And uh, I wish Luke had put in parentheses, they had been told wrongly about you. Uh, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's one thing you don't do if you want to win friends and have influence among the Jews is to say that Moses is no good. Now, Paul had not said that Moses is no good. Paul is just as happy with the Ten Commandments as any of the rest of them. But they're saying that that's what he said. It's not what he's saying. And then telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, Remember that Sunday where we all came ready to church because that's what we wanted to talk about, right? No, we don't like sermons on circumcision. But when we teach through the Scripture, we've got to understand what that means. And that was the Jerusalem Council. We've got these Gentiles who are saved by grace, but are we going to make them go through that? No, it's not necessary. It served a purpose. The purpose is over. Now it's not a big deal. But if you grew up that way, that's probably still the way that you raise your families, right? And if you hear that he's teaching that you don't have to do it, then maybe it comes across to somebody else as he's saying you're not supposed to do it, which is not what he's saying. He's just saying you don't have to. Why not? Because Jesus paid our supreme sin sacrifice. We don't need that work in order to get to heaven. So what is James's concern? Well, there's a number of things so far in where we've read that we can say it's not. First, it wasn't about the way of salvation because he already says it's through faith and it's on the basis of grace. It's not on the basis of works. So that's not their discussion or their concern at this point. They already agreed that salvation is through grace. We have in Jesus, not by obeying the law, though when you're saved you should obey the moral part of the law. It also wasn't about what Paul taught the Gentiles. Because he did teach that circumcision was unnecessary, but so did James and the Jerusalem council. But they haven't been as forthright in 
continuing to communicate those things throughout Jerusalem as Paul is thorough enough to do that in the Gentile world. And you could probably, with your imagination, imagine why it would be a a thing to talk about among Gentiles and maybe something that would be ignored among the Jews. So it wasn't about that. And it wasn't about the moral law, which the standard for that would be the Ten Commandments. Because both agreed that God's people must live a holy life according to God's holy commandments. That, that's also something Paul would teach. It's not that now that Jesus has died, you can have your sin and enjoy it too. No. You have your sin, but he paid for it with his blood so that you're not enslaved to it anymore. So we're, I think we're getting closer to understanding what the issue is about. The concern was about Jewish customs, which are not really law, uh, though it's very important to them. Uh, You may know enough about uh, your Bibles, and and, and this would be tough to find specifically if you did your due diligence and homework, which would take you a while and may even earn you, I don't know, a Ph.D. somewhere. Um, We've been told that there's 613 commands in the Old Testament. And some argue about that because there's some places in the Old Testament where it is said more than once. So do you count it once or twice? Or there's some places where the same principle is elaborated on, so maybe you don't count that twice. So for those that thought, well, good grief, I only had 10 commandments to keep. I'd much rather have 10 to keep than the 613. doesn't matter. The 10 cover the 613. And 10 is too many for any of us to ever keep or any of these people to keep. And if you understand a bit about Jewish history or Judaism, they they weren't happy to keep the 613. There were all these other things called traditions, which would elaborate down to the way that they ate their food or how they washed their hands. And I think I've shared with you once how it fell upon us to put together a kosher meal for some uh, folks we had in as as missionaries, uh, but also with... uh, Jewish delegation and uh, how all that works. It's complicated. And what Paul spent his life saying was that's not where you find salvation in meticulously keeping all these rules. You find salvation in Christ doing this on your behalf because you can't. So it's these important things but not salvific things because Jesus has done that for us that's in play here. And the question would be, should Jewish Christians, once, once you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but you're Jewish, do you continue to observe the Jewish cultural practices that Moses gave a long time ago to get you to the place where you would see that Jesus is the Son of God as he sent him to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world? That's what's at play. And the rumors are flying around where Paul is teaching the answer is no. We throw it all out is not the case. And for this reason, the Jewish elders are worried that some of these Jews might get violent when they learn that Paul is in town. So verse 22, I I titled the message this, what then is to be done? Life kind of hits us that way from time to time. What do we do about all this? Well, they will certainly hear that you have come. This is James speaking. You've you've got a they. Don't you love it when when the problem is described as they? A faceless person. It's kind of like an anonymous male. 
dad always told me, I know you compliment me sometimes on, not me, but dad, when I mentioned dad taught me this or that, but he said it's called file 13. You just get rid of it. Because, it, it, I mean, would, 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 would you think the bank's going to cash a check? Nobody signed? No. And then I remember him talking about a, a situation. I can't remember the pastor's name. This, this, this is verified. It's not one of those, uh, maybe it was true around these famous preachers. But a um, man walks up, platform. This is back when uh, you know, all the preachers, all of them would sit like in special chairs, like, you know, presiding over something. And uh, opens the note, and it just says, fool on it. So when it's pastor's turn, he gets up and he says, Now, I've received a lot of anonymous mail over my lifetime, but I've never received one where the fellow signed it and didn't write anything. <laughs> Maybe when you've been at a church a long time, you've got the credit to say something because somebody in that room knows what that piece of paper was all about. But... Uh, they will certainly hear that you have come, this group of people who has a problem with your teaching. Um, therefore, do what we tell you. And here's the plan. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses. Now, we talked about this a ways back because uh, in chapter 18, I believe, it seems like Paul was... Finishing out a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow was uh, Old Testament. There's, there's rules for that. Anybody could do it, men or women. Uh, the famous person we know in the Bible would be Samson. You remember the rules? You couldn't have anything to do with wine or grapes for that matter. Couldn't have anything to do with a dead animal. And he couldn't cut his hair. Now, he lived perpetually under this Nazarite vow, where others it might be 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, but you wouldn't cut your hair was the big one. you stay away from the wine and away from anything that uh, had been killed. So that was one of those things that's not necessary anymore on this side of the cross. You don't work your way to heaven by taking vows. Now, Paul took one after the cross, so what does that mean? Well, that's just the way a good Jew shows his devotion to a great Savior. But in this case, they, it seems that they think this is important. And the thing to do for the people that are confused about where Paul's commitments are, have him do that with them. Now, if they knew Paul well, they knew he did this before. Maybe he does it all the time. And pay their expenses, which could have been quite substantial um, and it's more than just a haircut you know that's the end of it when when you shave your head but uh, that as far as what they tell it tell us it's kind of two-pronged two uh, first that he will participate in the purification rites of four men who likely have taken a Nazarite vow it doesn't say we're guessing and what all that entails we don't completely know we know what Samson did there could be more and then secondly, Paul is asked to pay their expenses. Again, that could be expensive. But like in chapter 8, it's, it's, it's seemingly the same. So, not to forget 
the Gentiles, look, look what he says afterward, verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain. And this is basically verbatim after the Jerusalem Council. It's the same letter. Paul knows all this stuff. Uh, there's the idols, immorality, things that have been strangled. We talked about that then. Why would that be important to Gentiles? Because their whole pagan system of worship had to do with temple worship, with idols, and with sacrificed meat, which was strangled instead of the blood drained like we do our animals here, which means it's not kosher at all, of course. So why is he being asked to do this? And what do you think of... I don't know if I should say, how does this sound or how does this smell? You've got Paul and James. One represents the Gentile missionary efforts, the other Jerusalem, Jews, Gentiles. And then the law, which James and Paul seem to be on the same page. It had its place. It's now a new covenant. But you've got these people that are worried about this, and they're upset uh, such that they want to arrest you. Why don't you just go along to get along, do this, and, and some of the things that you might read right over are, are the things that I think get maybe past one nostril, but not both. You ever do that? Hey, try this. No. Maybe you get both. Okay. It's just something off. If you do this, thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. No, he doesn't. Not like he did. In fact, he's, he's the one to make the clearest distinction between all that stuff that means nothing anymore. He used a word for all of that stuff that we would tell our children not to use. It's worthless as far as salvation. But he's being asked to make it look like it's just as important to him as it is to them. So this is kind of tricky. Uh, you, you probably all know individuals based on their temperament. There's, there's one of two types. There's, what is it, the, uh, the agreeable person? Well, sure. Let's make a scenario. Three, four guys get in a car. The task is lunch. They're co-workers. Somebody says... Where do you want to go? You know, the, the first person that speaks can be the winner. They can be the loser. You know, it, it, there's no way all four of them want the same thing. Or, or that'd be where they're going. They don't need to ask, right? But there's usually agreeable people. Doesn't matter to me. And then there's others. I ain't eating there or wherever else. So which, which is appropriate here? Again, this is all about making decisions. Well, what can we say so far? We can say that we should probably only thank God for the generosity of spirit displayed by both these men. They're both in a situation, and they're both trying to figure it out. They're already agreed doctrinally, salvation by grace through faith. They're already agreed ethically that Christians must obey the moral law, but the traditions aren't necessary. Uh, John Stott said the issue between them concerned culture, ceremony, and tradition. That's not necessarily the moral law, and it's certainly not salvation by grace through faith. So the solution to which they come 
that was planned by James and agreed upon by Paul was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, like, like I've got to give away part of my conviction. That, that wasn't true. Uh, but was rather categorized accurately, I believe, as a concession in the area of practice. Normally I roll this way. For you, I'll roll this other way. It's a concession. And that's what happens in the car. Where are we going to eat? Someone's making a concession. Or they'll get out of the car and go separate ways, perhaps. Paul's already done something like this. Do you remember after the whole Jerusalem council, he takes Timothy, who's Greek, and Hebrew, sort of. He has him circumcised. Well, you don't have to do that, Paul. You wonder if Timothy said, I don't have to do this. But because he's going to be teaching in Jewish circles, he has it done to make sure it's not a stumbling block. Because you don't necessarily want to slap someone and then expect them to listen to what you have to say. If slap is by means of offense. So Paul does this again. In other words, having... um, I'll, I'll put this the other way. Quoting F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, he's one of the commentaries I use. Uh, I thought this was brilliant. Paul's emancipated spirit was not in bondage to his own emancipation. Now, the word emancipation means his freedom. So here you have a man who's free, but he's not chosen to enslave himself to his own freedom. And there are people like that. Um, I remember an article. Um, written by a middle-aged man, and it had to do with his uh, work and writing and involvement with the younger generation. But he also was um, very transparent in that he had learned most of what he knew from an older generation. And you could probably find this if I mentioned one of the two names involved. But this was over this Christian liberty and freedom that our younger culture seems to have found. And they might even uh, come commensurate with this uh, movement you might have heard called Young, Restless, and Reformed. Um, But they all grew up in churches where certain things were taboo. And now they're going home like on Thanksgiving and Christmas and saying, Hey, Grandma, hey, Grandpa, cheers! You'd think they'd have more sense than that. We've got our Bibles, and our Bibles seem to be clear, but it can be perceived by one group that your freedom is really your bondage because you seem to be so stuck in it being the way now that you don't have any time or appreciation for the way you might have been raised. It's a multi-generational type thing. And uh, it's clear here that Paul doesn't have that itis. Nobody fought harder at the Jerusalem Council for the truth of the gospel as given to us by Christ himself. But then here he goes and submits himself not to the, to the law he's not only not under anymore, but the thought process of people he might offend by doing so. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And how do we know that? This is 1 Corinthians 9.19. And this is exactly what Paul is doing. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 
to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, hey, that's what's going on here. I became as one under the law, and in parentheses, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, that be Gentiles, the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And here you see the same man from last week and the week before taking the higher motivation rather than the lower one, which would be his preference or his own rights or his own worries. He's going to go with the Lord, with the gospel. And if he can put himself in the back seat and the gospel in the front seat, then maybe by the end of his life he'll have one more than if he was in the front seat and the gospel's in the back seat. It's the best way I know how to describe it. So if we're going to say, you know, what's in this for me? We know what was, but we live where it is. Wasness to isness, right? Here's some points. Uh, they don't need numbers. Let's see. I've got five of them. But these just, I think, are, are, are obvious observations of what we've got and maybe um, a direction on how to act. And probably most of you by the end of this list will go, that sounded great, but it's really no help to me. <laughs> we'll see when we get to the end, right? And then I'll tell you what I think you should do. I'll tell you what I'm doing. You can decide. Sometimes Christians come to different conclusions based on the same set of facts. We learned that last week. But it, it's true. And where with last week, the Holy Spirit's telling everybody the same thing, but they're coming from different motivations. Some, their love for Paul. Don't go. And Paul himself, with his love for lost, the lost, I've got to go. Um... But it's the same thing here. You've, you've got Jewish Christians who are worried about the law and Gentile Christians who don't even know what it means. Uh, the Holy Spirit seems to be working with them both. We've got miracles and tongues and all sorts of things, miracles to prove that the Holy Spirit's working in them all, but they're on different pages. Now, this, of course, does not apply to the gospel or other plain teachings of Scripture where it's obvious and plain and clear, this is what you do. This is where it's not necessarily said in black and white. And there's lots of places in the Scripture where we wish there was more said. So I think that was enough from last week. And with this week, we can move on to the next. The next is sometimes one must consider more than what everyone else is saying. Where there was a smaller group of people saying, Paul, don't go. Now you've got thousands, it says, among the Jews who are Christians who are taking issue on misinformation that, that Paul is wrong. So do you stand up and say, every last one of you are wrong. I'm not that guy and I didn't say those things. Or do you go get your hair cut with four men and just let them watch? There's two different ways to skin the same cat, I suppose. Cat wouldn't be culture, wouldn't be kosher, would it? No one skins and eats a cat anyway. Just want to see if you're listening. 
The point here is that you don't want to live your life on the principle that the majority is always right or that the majority is right most of the time. The majority can be wrong, though for most cases and most things, practically speaking, um, word gets around and sometimes you can rely on it. But think of all the passages in the Scripture that warn you against that being as your plan for life. There's a narrow gate and a broad gate. The, the broad gate, everybody's on it. It leads to destruction. The narrow gate, there's only few. But it's a way of salvation. Most of the world's not sitting in rooms like this listening to an old book. We would say most of the world is wrong. So that's a big one. And we need to remember it. Even though we might have people that we know and are close to us that are part of that loud voice. The majority. Here's another one. Sometimes the hard way is the best way. And for Paul, a lot of what was best was the hard part. That's why he's Paul, and we look up to him. Um, I've written down life is hard. Most of the time, uh, you just can't help the fact that life is hard. But this is more a decision that is made to choose what to do when there are options available, and you've got some easy options, and you've got some hard options And you might just have the notion that, okay, a lot of people are saying this is a way to do it. And it happens to be the easier way. And this other way, nobody's saying anything about. And it's very difficult. Why don't I just do the easy thing? Why isn't that the best thing? Because sometimes that would be wrong. I wish I could tell you different. I I wish that uh, the, the, the bulk of problems that come to a church say for the purpose of counseling or advice, fall into some of those categories. I mean, I, I know of, of... It shouldn't surprise you that pastors get together sometimes and talk shop. You know, the, 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 they need one another just to make sure, you know, that they're not half crazy, right? Um, but it's, it's not uncommon... Uh, Pastor, I I, I need your help. And the whole story is just describing this massive difficulty. And the idea is, uh, please give me permission to take the easy way out and dump this husband of mine or or wife of mine or, 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 or whatever. I can't tell you to do what the Scriptures clearly say you shouldn't do. Though I understand that Jesus himself said there's a reason for relationships exploding, and that's because of the hardness of your own heart. This isn't easy. Uh, life gives you difficult problems that only one thing's going to help you with. And usually, for some reason, I don't know why, choices seem, seem to come in pairs or triplets. It's, it's never just... Here, this is the Holy Spirit speaking. Here's the one door you open through. No, I'm going to give you one, and the devil will give you one, and then there's just one just for fun. Pick one out of the three. Uh, what is it? Uh, good, better, best. Never let it rest till you're good as you're better, and you're better as you're best. There's a best door, and it's better than the better door, and certainly better than the good door. And we got to figure it out. Sometimes the hard way is the best way. What about raising children? Should we, should we decide, let's just make it as easy as we possibly can in every situation for the child, and they should be just fine? 
Don't they teach you in school? Don't help the chicken get out of its egg. You know, that, the cracking out of the egg, the difficult part, is what gives them the strength, stretches their muscles, the blood circulates, and they'll be fine. You take them out of the egg, they might not make it. Um, your, your kids aren't chickens. But I think you get the idea here. Uh, what about faithful ministry? Is the easy way the best way? Or is the hard way the best way? Um... Our culture is changing and changing quickly. There are hard conversations going on where the trajectory of entire denominations are choosing the easy way or the hard way. One way is better. We better ought to want to find out. Uh, reverse that for the fourth one. Sometimes the easy way is the best way. Sometimes it is. And some of us beat our head against the wall saying this should be harder I should pray more. I should have more people. And, and someone, your elder and much wiser, says, do that. Why? Because it's easy. And there's nothing wrong with it. And go on to the next. Um, I will share with you that uh, at one point I did ask my dad about whether or not I should marry my wife. He didn't even look up from his lunch. We're at Cracker Barrel. He did stop chewing and swallowed and said, Son, where are you going to find another one like that? I said, I don't think I will. He said, Marry her. And he said, I've been wondering for a while what you're waiting on, wondering if you're even my son. Marry the girl. He said, Do you think she'll say yes? I said, I'm pretty sure. He said, Do it tomorrow. He said, In fact, I can marry you tomorrow. So sometimes the best way is the easy way. But do you feel like we've arrived there yet? At this is, this is good stuff and it's interesting, but I don't know if it's much help. You, you just told me it could be one or the other. How do I know? Because you do need to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. Don't count your money while the <laughs> offering plate is going, right? What are we to do with this? Well, here's the last one. The only way to ever know what to do is to have a head full of wisdom and a heart given over completely to the gospel. And you'll need both of those because the heart for the gospel will allow you to live for the good of others like Paul did. Because the gospel will be what's most important. It'll be front seat and you can be in the back seat. And if you can be in the back seat, you can be flexible. Where you're not compromising your morals or scripture. But for the purpose of the platform to be heard. Even if it's just for them to watch you. Do what you do with your family. That's something. It's not the gospel, but it's the prelude to it. If we take Paul, for example... Yes, he was free in the law and free from taking any sort of vow. He could have said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to stand on my principles. But he didn't. For the sake of the gospel, he made that clear in the passage we read. He chose to forego his freedom in order of love for his neighbor, but more ultimately love for the gospel. 
But that wasn't all that we needed. We needed that head full of wisdom. Right? And what do we talk about? Where do we get the verse? Where he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He'll give you liberally, without upbraiding. He won't make fun of you or scold you for not having had it. It's James, the other guy here. He's the one that tells us that. Ask for it. You'll get it. Now, in preparation for this, some I read, some I listen to on the road, and a pastor not too far from here was teaching through this passage. He got to this point, and he said that for so many years in ministry, this was a struggle for him. Lord, I've got to have some wisdom. I don't know what to do. This is too big for me. Uh, I'm not cut out for this. Um, and he said it was as if I just assumed that God was going to upload this wisdom to my brain or while I slept. Here's three tablespoons worth of liquid wisdom. And when you wake up, you'll know what to do. And he said, I just, after a while, realized that's not the way it worked. And I threw my head back and laughed when he went into the next part of it because it's, it's just embarrassingly true. He said, it dawned on me that all the difficult situations that I was in the middle of begging for wisdom was the means by which God gave me the wisdom. As if the Lord said, I've been giving you wisdom, you dummy. But I don't just upload it. I put you through the ringer. When you come out the other side, you're wiser. So this ringer is not for this problem. It's for the problem down the road, and you'll have it when you need it, but only because of a prescribed ringer. Or class. So what I would, would leave you with is pray for your wisdom, just like James said. But don't be surprised when you're secretly in, enrolled in a class. Wisdom 101, 102, 103. And then later you'll be ready for wisdom 201, 202, 203, 301, 401, 1001. They're upper-level classes as you grow and you mature in Christ. But it's the only way. It's the sad way in many ways because you really only know how to raise kids after years are gone. And when we get to the summer series in Titus, we're going to learn how Paul said, Young mothers, what you need is not some book on a shelf. You need an older lady. She can help you with that stuff. Your husband doesn't know what to tell you. He's not a woman. And he'll never know. And older men, you're to tell us young men how to pump the brakes because we act like we don't have any until it's too late. We've made shipwreck of something. And on and on and on. That's later. I think this is good stuff. We've learned from Paul yet again. It's Luke showing us something that Paul might have not said of himself. He told us that that's the way he operated, but read far enough along. And Luke gives us an example of the very thing he's teaching in another book to another group of people. So we've been, we've been educated today. And now it's our, our, our privilege to be able to apply this and obey. So with that said, let's, let's pause and bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for the simplicity of it. It doesn't feel simplistic in the middle of, of a scramble trying to figure out what to do where it seems as if there's no good option. They all hurt. They're all painful. Lord, give us wisdom. And give us, give us those things that follow from wisdom. 
that patience that comes from the trial, that enduring the trial will make us steadfast. Very practical things from this man named James. Lord, would you be so kind as to to lavish these things on us, not for ourselves so we can sit back, but so we can be useful. Give us enough in order to give away. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.